Hi, this is Jennifer Ackerman Haywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast, an interview show all about art, craft, and creativity. Well, if you couldn't express yourself, how would you de-stress yourself? And if you couldn't make and build and sing, and knit and paint and dance and spin, would you go crazy? Well, if you're going crazy... All right, this is episode 219, and my guest is Amos Kennedy of Kennedy Prints. So I met Amos back in August when I was at the Ann Arbor Ways Goose with my daughter, Abby, and we kind of went around to all the booths, and of course I was attracted to his booth because he was making cool posters and had a bunch of cool posters with him, and also was just doing a print demo, which is really awesome. So he was letting people pull prints on a mini press that he had, he was wearing overalls, and I thought, this guy, I need to talk to this guy. <laughs> I liked his style, and I liked the fact that he was really just trying to engage people in this wonderful thing called letterpress printing. This is going to be a fun one. I think you're going to enjoy it, even if you're not into printmaking, because I hope it'll lead you into printmaking and collecting type and all these great things. I know after my interview with Amos, I started doing full blast experimentation with... I'm laughing now. And after you hear the interview, what I just said might be particularly funny to you. Amos, I think you are probably laughing now if you can hear this. But um, anyway, getting back on track, after the interview, I started experimenting big time with making my own fonts. I am uh, doing some really basic things right now, and I'm hoping to get more into this as I go because I have etching presses so that means I can raise and lower my roller bar and it doesn't have to be type high so that's a really cool thing so if you ever want to talk to me about all that nerdy stuff send me an email I'd love to talk how you can retrofit an etching press to be a letterpress anytime because I am super into all this stuff So I'm not going to do a really long intro because I really just want to get into this talk and we're going to uh, really get to know Amos, who is actually from Detroit. He's a Detroit letterpress printer and his style is really wonderful. I mean, it's really wonderful and I love what he's going to tell us about how he got started and how he developed his signature style of having many layers to his posters. So I'll post some photos on the website and I'll link back to his awesome poster gallery. And during the interview, he's going to tell you where you can get your hands on his cool posters and order some and add some to your collection. That'd be awesome. And um, it'll direct you to some cool shops around. So if you're in Michigan, he'll give you some locations. He's also selling in Chicago and other places. So we'll get you um, all that information as we go. So grab a project and pour yourself some tea or your beverage of choice and settle in for an interview, uh, more like a conversation with Amos Kennedy. Well, Amos, welcome to the show. I'm very excited to get a chance to talk to you about your letterpress printmaking. I saw your work before I got a chance to meet you. I know we just met recently 
at the Ways Goose in Ann Arbor. So you were doing a printmaking demo and you were wearing overalls and you're really into it. And I was like, all right, I like this guy's style. <laughs> I want to talk to him. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, thank you very much. <laughs> so Kennedy Prince has been in existence for how long? Uh, 69 years. 69 years? Yes. A year older than you? Oh, I started at my conception. Oh, I... <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a very interesting interview. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Before you even were consciously very aware of your own existence, you're telling me that you were thinking about printmaking and letterpress? Uh, no, but, but even in that unconscious state, the information that I conceived and I uh, accumulated is used now. So I say that what you see at this moment is the culmination of the 69 years I've been in existence. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. And so did you, is this something that you, did you learn this from a family member? Is there anyone else that did letterpress work before you in your family? Or is this No, something you I am the first person to do letterpress printing in my family. Okay. And let's talk about what Got you into it. So as a small child, I'm, I'm thinking you were probably pretty creative and interesting even back then. Uh, what kinds of stuff were you doing? Were you doing artwork as a kid? No, I wasn't doing any artwork. As a small child, I really don't remember much of my life. Uh, that's how exciting it was. Okay. But I clearly was not, uh, I clearly did not have what one would call an artistic talent. I was uh, just your plain vanilla C student, I guess you would say. Okay. And then, so how, at what point did you kind of discover art for yourself and decide that you want to pursue that? Well, one, I don't believe in the term art. Okay. I believe it is a term that excludes most of humanity. And also it denies or it attempts by those people who use it to want to deny the creativity that exists within all people, the ability to make beautiful things which exist within all people. All people have this talent. And uh, I just don't like the exclusive nature of the term art. Okay, yeah, well, that you raise a good point because I, you, anytime you have a term that causes people to maybe shut down or think they can't do something, uh, that is problematic. And um, I, I share that belief that that everyone has a creative spirit. You just have to figure out how to tap into it. And some people need Correct. a little bit of extra coaxing to get to, to understand that they have that within themselves. So for you, what was the a point in your life that do you recall when you felt like you kind of tapped into that creative side for yourself? Well, the first time I realized I tapped into it was doing undergraduate studies. And I was a math major. And as I got more into the theoretical part of math, it was just fascinating to watch how you solve these exercises that were extremely complex. And sometimes the solution would come very easy. Other times it would be a struggle. But the satisfaction that you got from uh, coming up with the solution was overwhelming. And you wanted to have that feeling again. It's just that energy that's produced that is so satisfying. And it does translate to everything, you know, anytime as a human, you can have that um, response where you kind of feel like, whoa, that was awesome. I want to do that again. I have to say, for me, math was not, uh, I I struggled so much in math, but I did have those moments in my math class. So when I actually got the problem right, and I was like, wow, even I can do this. You know, I think, you know, it, it is a satisfying thing. Where were you going to school? Where did you study math? I went to Grambling College. It was Grambling College at the time, but right now it's Grambling State University in Grambling, Louisiana. Okay. And did you go there for your undergrad too? 
I went there for my undergrad and then my graduate I didn't do for 20 years later. And I did my graduate work at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Okay. And did you study math again? No, I studied uh, fine arts. I actually studied graphic design. So uh, during the interim, I spent about 20 years as a computer programmer. And I spent uh, four or five years just doing letterpress printing on my own in the basement of the house I lived in. And then I, I was... I decided to go back to graduate school in graphic design to study uh, book building and graphic design. And so how did you get your hands on that first letterpress uh, experience? Like, did you have access to a press? Did you come across one? Well, it was, a, it was a long journey. During my 20s, I studied calligraphy because I've always been interested in books and letter forms. So I studied calligraphy, and I, with parenthood, uh, comes uh, a need to reprioritize your time. And so I kind of dropped calligraphy for a number of years. But in 1988, I took my two sons to Williamsburg, and there we saw a demo of letterpress printing, and I was fascinated by it. So when I got back to Chicago, Illinois, I found a organization called Artist Bookworks, which was a community-based book arts program that offered classes in the evening for adults. And I took a letterpress course there. And I took two courses, as a matter of fact. And after those two courses, I decided that I wanted to do this because it was so satisfying. I just like printing. And I think one of the things that was very satisfying about printing is that you were doing multiples and so you could give them away. Right. Yeah. And it's nice to see people get happy or be, you know, put a smile on them on their face because of something that you've created and you've built by hand, partially by hand, you've given them. And I didn't ask you, where are you, where are you actually from originally? Are you from Chicago? I'm originally from Louisiana. Okay. Uh, actually, I was, born, I was born in Lafayette, Louisiana, but I was raised in Grambling, Louisiana. However, I spent six years of my life in Michigan at various times. Okay. As a child? As a child, yes. Okay. And then ended up in Chicago... And then did you yep. move from Chicago to Detroit or was there a stop in between? No, I moved from Chicago. It's, it was a long journey. I moved from Chicago to Wisconsin, Wisconsin to Indiana, Indiana to Alabama, Alabama to Detroit, Michigan. Oh, wow. And how long have you been in Detroit? I've been in Detroit since 2013, so that makes it five years now. Okay. So do you think you'll stay a while or do you think you have another place? Until I'm to... dead. <laughs> well, hopefully that's a good long while. That's uh, so this, Yeah, you, you well, hope... we, are, we don't know. But I will be here. As I told people when, when they said, well, why did you move to Detroit? I said, to die. Oh. They're like, whoa. I said, you have to die. Why not pick the place? You can't pick the place where you were born, but at least you can pick the place where you die. And what was it about Detroit that made you want to, I mean, I know that you want to have it be your final destination, but I mean, what, what is it about the city itself that attracted you? Detroit is the only metropolitan area in the United States with a hub airport that I could afford to live in and uh, live the lifestyle that I want to. I am not interested in really having a business. I'm just interested in printing barely enough to get by. I, I believe that you should live off as little as possible in some aspects. Now, Detroit works for me because of the rents and the ability to purchase a building are affordable within the budget that I have. I mean, I could, you know, if I was in another area, I would have to spend far more time worried about how am I going to make my monthly expenses. But the lifestyle that I have uh, fits very comfortably within 
the parameters of living within De- in Detroit City. You know, you move outside into the uh, southeast suburbs, it would cost more. Right, right. So do you have a, do you live in one place and have a studio in another place? Or how, what is your setup like? I, I live in one place and I have a shop in another place. And, uh, and it's about two miles separates the two of us. So okay, so where where's right your now. shop? Where in Detroit is your My shop? My shop is in uh, a space called the Russell Industrial Center in Detroit on Clay Street. And it's a huge complex that uh, at one time was renting to artists, but they ran into trouble with the city. And now they are attempting to bring the place up to code. Oh. It was very inexpensive, but the, the reason it was inexpensive was because it didn't meet many of the city codes. And right now they are attempting to uh, bring it up to code so they can stay in business. And so for you, how long have you been renting there? Uh, five years. Okay. So do you have, is it a place where people, the public can come and purchase things from you or um, see you working or is this just a private studio? It is a place where people can, if they find me, come and hang out. I welcome people into uh, the space because you always make a memory. You just don't know what type of memory you will make. And to, so for people to have the experience, well, at least, at least they can't say, I never had that experience. And it's better for them to say, I had the experience, I didn't like it, that I never had that experience, <laughs> right. and I could have probably been something. So you've been doing this letterpress stuff. It's a long time now. It's like, what, going yes. on like 30 years? It's 30 years this year. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. So how has your your work changed? Uh, when I started out, I wanted to be a traditional letterpress printer, so I was doing things, business cards, invites, uh, broadsides things of that nature, which all the uh, letterpress people were doing. Then I attempted to make books, uh, limited edition books. And um, then I went back to graduate school, and I just did what you do in graduate school. And what is that? What did they have you do in graduate school? I really don't recall. Uh, We did a little bit of everything. Uh, I took primarily courses related to the, uh, the building of the book and printing. So I ended up making several books. I studied uh, collages. I did the art history thing, you know, because you had to take six hours of art history and six hours of art theory, and the rest was studio. And most of my studio is related to the book in some way. We uh, I studied children's books and how they were uh, how they impact civilization. Also, I take a storytelling course in the School of Library Science. So everything I did was related to text in some way. Okay, that sound that does sound pretty fun. Did you enjoy it? It was an enjoyable experience. I was different from the other students. I was older than most of the students uh, that were there. And one of the things that I didn't realize is that I had my own space with my own equipment. So it wasn't that I needed to schedule time at the university to get my work done. I could. I was a commuter student, so when I would go back to my space in Milwaukee, where I was living at the time, I had my own printing press. I had my own type, so I didn't have to take things apart at the end of the session and put it back together. I could just leave form standing and continue to work when I found the time. And so I believe that that was a real asset for my uh, graduate studies. Sounds like you kind of had equipment. Were exper- you started experimenting and then went to grad school. That is correct. 
Now, there is a printer named Kevin Bradley that runs a business called The Church of Type, and he uh, he has converted an etching press to uh, accept letterpress uh, type high material, and he does these massive four foot by eight foot, four foot by ten foot pieces, just beautiful. And if you have Instagram and you go out on Church of Type, you see his work. I will check He's that just out. He's magnificent. Yes. It's so cool so, to see what people are yeah. doing. Once you adjust your etching press that is type high, you can print posters. People want to have a Vandercook because that's the press that most universities have. Mm-hmm. But I say if you want to print, you get whatever press you can get. Yeah. And an etching press and hand inking, you can print, but you're not going to print 10,000 or 1,000. You know, you may print 50 or 100. Because once you learn how to hand ink, it's, it becomes rhythm. Right. It becomes rhythm, and you get into a flow, and suddenly you're printing, you know, a hundred. One of the printers that I, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, to study under, all, all of his work was hand inked, and he was a commercial printer. He was printing signs for businesses, shirts for sale, you know, a a party tonight, you know, our festival going on. So, and he was hand inking everything. That's awesome. Yeah. So, and you're right. I mean, you, you working with what you have, I think if anything, I think that forces you to a whole new level of creativity too, because if you don't have exactly what everybody else has and you're like, well, I got to work this out. Like for me, the biggest thing was I had to figure out how to lock the type without having anything to lock it with. So um, I actually printed, the first thing I printed, I got a, a new press um, from Conrad uh, Machine uh, here in uh, in Michigan. And I got this, you know, I saved up for this big press that's 36 inches across. And I'm like, I'm going to make something big. So I got out big type. Um, I don't have much type, but I have, you know, I, I have these letters that are pretty big. And I so I just set hot off the press and I put a t-shirt down and printed it, <laughs> but I used to, I used, um, I had boards and like some bolts and like wing nuts and, um, a friend of mine who's, um, one of, he helps me make weaving looms for my weaving loom business. And we kind of figured this thing out. And, um, uh, and I was like, it was very satisfying because I was like, okay, I just got to work. We got to work this out and figure out how to print. Uh, so it's so, it's so incredibly fun. I also print on cookie sheets. So I'll set my type on an old cookie sheet and it has a little rim around the entire side. And then I just shove in, um, I use magnets to hold things down, kind of like everybody else uses magnets. But I put a cookie sheet down. And because my I can adjust the roller, because my sure. roller goes up and down, it doesn't have to be type high. It can be, you know, higher or lower, whatever I'm, well, it wouldn't be lower than type high. That wouldn't work. But it could be up higher a sure. little bit. And I can adjust that. So I am just beginning to experiment with this. And it is so exciting and I feel like fireworks go off in my brain and I'm not a drug user <laughs> so I, I mean but I get oh, to you're that missing point so much fun it's so you're fun. so much fun yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I better not let my mom hear this podcast right she's like you got to stay away from that guy you know? <laughs> but yeah it's so it's so fun so for you just when you, you, so you got to that point where you would go back to your studio and so you were commuting. How, how far were you commuting to, to school for your graduate program? Oh, I don't know because I, there was a bus that ran back and forth between Madison and Milwaukee. So oh, I'd get okay. on the bus and then I, yeah, Madison, uh, 
both places were terminal points of the bus, so I didn't have to. Some days I could just sleep all the way, and other days I would study. Oh, good. So you didn't have to. Going on. Well, yeah. that's pretty cool. So you just kind so of. It was made about that... 45. It was about 45 miles, 50 miles, something like that, I think. How has your work changed since then? And I don't know if you went through a few different stages with your work. Well, let me just first say what you were talking about uh, your process and the way you work. There's an adage that limitations galvanize the imagination. And because you had some, because you had these limitations to work with, you became creative with what you had. And I maintain that one does not master the craft or the art or whatever you want to call it. That medium masters you or allows you to master yourself. Because that etching press still is an etching press. It hasn't changed. What has changed is how you look at that etching press and how you look at you can use that etching press. It's true. So that etching press allows you to grow as a human and understand the world better as a human. I can't wait for my husband to hear this podcast because... Uh, he teases me. He's like, okay, so we buying a new press this month? Do we buy our monthly press? Um, I don't buy a press every month, but I want to, right? You know, so I, <laughs> but I'll be like, it's helping me grow as a human, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, it helps you to understand the world. It helps you to, you solve problems there that you can see. You become a better problem solver when you go out into the world. And I don't want to take this down a political drain here, but for the last couple of years, uh, especially as a journalist, it's been uh, it's been kind of rough uh, for for me personally. I teach journalism. I'm helping the next generation of uh, journalists kind of figure out how to navigate the world um, as it is. And uh, so I've been doing some kind of just letting out some things I need to let out, you know, by printing some things on my press. And uh, it's been very therapeutic and it, it does I mean literally gives me a, a way of processing some of the stuff that we're kind of wading through as a nation right now and um, I think that's very healthy I mean especially you know if you can you can do you can make some choices about how you want to process things and um, I think printing is a pretty healthy one so so yeah I would encourage you to have your students learn to navigate the world to be the way they want it to be because they have within, each person has within them the ability to alter the world to the way they want it to be. And every little step, every ounce of energy that is used to, to, uh, to manifest the world as you envision it helps it to be manifested. And it helps other people who share your dreams, your aspirations to manifest theirs. Mm -hmm. So instead of saying, how do I navigate the existing world? How do I make the world that I want come into existence? Kind of reshape. Yep. That's a great outlook. Yes. It is better to build than to destroy because in building, there is a natural destruction. So did you study philosophy as well? Uh, no, I just stayed high a lot. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Oh my goodness! So, so you do you have a quote collection? Because I notice a lot of your prints are. I know um, that you. It was a Japanese proverb that you were printing at the Ways Goose to teach is the center of to learn. Um, now, do you have a, a pretty big quote collection, or do you print a lot of your own stuff? I print uh, more things that I find in my own stuff. I have an affinity for aphorisms, proverbs, you know, sayings, quotations 
because these are very, you know, they're very limited in the text, but they are so full of information and knowledge that one can use. I just, I just gravitate towards them. I don't gravitate towards a novel or an essay necessarily, but you know, that thing that someone can actually remember and apply. Right. And because they come up through the vernacular, they come up through the commons and they're so old, they have inherent truths in them. And one of the inherent truths in all proverbs and aphorisms is that there is always a, a countering aphorism or proverb for the one that you're saying. So it becomes a judgment call on the part of the person. Right. You, you decide know, which one you, know, you like. Haste makes waste is the same thing as, you know, uh, haste makes waste and, you know, like study long, you study wrong. You know, so which one do I do in this? Do I make a hasty decision or do I study for too long? Where is the balance between those two aphorisms? Very interesting. So when you decide you're going to print something, do you have like a list of quotes or proverbs that you're like, okay, I'm going to get to this one next? Or do you just randomly select something? I have an ongoing master list where I may hear somebody say something, or uh, an individual may come up to me and say, oh, I have a really good quotation, or I have a really good proverb, and I write it down. At some point, I will print it. And then there's also where I do my what I call a series. I may do a series on fishing. All these proverbs and quotations about fishing, I may do 10 different uh, proverbs, 10 different posters on it, and, and are Proverbs from Africa, or proverbs about books, or proverbs about coffee. It depends upon the subject that I have. And then I just do these kind of random ones. Uh, my most recent one was that I can say on your podcast was uh, <laughs> some women, most women have, uh, most women have hot flashes. I have power surges. Oh. <laughs> he said to his name. <laughs> So, and that was uh, a woman said that, and I heard her, and I wrote it down. I said, "That's so clever, you know." <laughs> and I noticed that you print on cardboard. Do you always print on yeah, cardboard chipboard. or chipboard? Is it I always chipboard? Print, uh, I print my uh, posters on chipboard, and that is because my posters come from the lineage of show card posters that we use to advertise circuses, carnivals, music concerts. Uh, things of that nature. And so they had to be outside, so they had to be a little sturdier than text weight paper. And so uh, that's where the size, the format, and everything came from. And traditionally, those would be called show card posters, and sometimes they're called event posters. And right now, the big thing is for music events, independent, uh, or independent records, labels, and independent, you know, small local bands will have a lot of them done. And they've done a lot by screen printing, but the letterpress, they still do some by letterpress. So I use that, uh, that weight of paper, and I normally they would put it on a white paper, a paper that had been bleached white, and uh, the text would be printed on. But I went to chipboard because uh, someone gave me some free chipboard. And the only thing better than uh, buying chipboard is getting free chipboard. <laughs> right. And since someone gave me free chipboard, I just started using chipboard as my default uh, paper. And chipboard is used in bookbinding, correct? For those who are listening. No, chipboard is actually used in making cereal boxes, things of that nature. Oh, it's a okay. very commercial paper. 
Yeah, it's a very, it's an extremely inexpensive paper, and it's used. You see it everywhere, but you never think about packaging. Most packaging is chipboard, right? Because it's usually printed on and that you make. Yeah, but if you open up a Cheerio box and you look on the inside, you'll see the chipboard. That's the that's what you print on. um, Without it doesn't. It's not dyed. It's not or bleached out. It's just uh, just a natural brownish grayish color. There are printers that will open up a box and then print on that box, the interior, and that's what they use as their platform for printing on. Because, I mean, boxes are everywhere. Right. You know, you buy cereal, you always have at least one box a month. Yeah, and you said that there's nothing better than free chipboard. So, you right. know, have you torn about part any boxes yourself? Um, um, no, I haven't. I uh, Because, again... I come from this tradition of show card posters and show card posters were normally somewhere between 12 inches wide and 14 inches wide right. and the 18 inches long and 22 inches long. So I've kind of centered on that. Okay. So those Cheerio boxes, even the giant family size is not big enough for <laughs> what you're trying it's to do. It's not big enough for it, but you know, there are, there will probably be a time. What I do print on is I print a lot on maps. The kind of maps that you can get at the uh, welcome stations when you go into different states. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I get a handful of those, and then I will print uh, uh, aphorisms and sayings on those. And do you keep them full size, or do you cut them up? I keep them full size. And so do you have to fold them, or do you have a press that's big enough to fit the whole map through? Again, our limitations galvanize the imagination, so you come up with a way of being able to print big on small, big paper on small uh, presses. And one reason I like maps is because they're already folded. Oh, so you yeah, can fold them, yeah. take packing out, just the same way as you say you can roll. Yeah, uh, yeah, I like that. And lower like your, that. Uh, your roller. So you can fold it. And most of the maps are already folded, so the creases are in it. Right, you're and not ruining you anything. The press. Yeah. Right. Excellent. Yeah, I love that idea. So this is really a, kind of a two-step process, I mean, as far as the printing goes, because you have to do one run with your background, at least one run. Do you do multiple print runs on backgrounds sometimes? Because I know you use, use a lot of color. There are a series of posters that I do that will go through the press four to five times before I put the actual text I want to print on it, because I like these backgrounds. The way I came up with doing backgrounds as a signature sort of look that I have is that I was printing a poster for a client and I was doing a single background because I was doing single backgrounds at the time and I misspelled a word and I had already printed a hundred of them. Oh no. So like a good doctor, I figured the best thing to do would be to bury my mistakes. And so I printed over and over again until you couldn't see the mistake. And then I put my text on top of it. Cool. And... I like that look, and so I continue to do that. I would say at least on 60% of the posters I do. I also like this, just the background, a tip block background with text on top of it. So I go all over the place. But the layering look is something that uh, I've been doing for the last 15 years. Yeah, no, the last 18 years on an ongoing basis of, uh, of doing my work. And it plays in well when I do my series. So what happens is, uh, for example, I do a series on coffee. So one layer will have all the countries that coffee comes from. 
Another layer will have all the different coffee drinks. Another layer may have dates of the uh, development of coffee in different countries. So all the backgrounds have information that is related to the text in some way or the subject of the text. How do you make your color choices? Do you decide as you go or do you kind of sketch something out, do something on the computer? Or no, it... I, uh, everything is done at the press right now, and I like that. So what happens is, say I'm going to do a series on books, then I will get out somewhere close to 2,000 sheets of paper, and I will make four piles. Each pile has 500 sheets of paper in it. I call one pile red, I call another pile yellow, I call another pile blue, I call the final pile mix. And so I have a form. That form, I will take the red pile and I will print that form in everything from a, a burgundy to a hot pink in every shade, color of red in between. And I do the same thing for each of them. The mixed ones, I would do like silver, gold, and then maybe browns and greens and stuff like that. Okay. And then once I've done that first layer, I mix up all 2,000 sheets. And then I break it up into piles of 500. And I continue to do this over and over again. So something like green will show up in either yellow or, or blue. Interesting. Because, you know, green is made of yellow. And right, blue. right. You leave room for some random things to happen. Well, uh, yes. Diversity is the only way that life can exist. Life cannot really exist in a monoculture. You have to have a diversified culture. And so I reflect that in the work that I do. Well, and it also makes things all the more fun at the press, too. Because if you're making 2,000 prints and they're all the same, I mean, that gets old. I will say it's monotony for me, but for other people, it is the crowning piece of their work to be able to make, say, 500 consistent impressions on a sheet of paper is what they live for. And they get the same excitement as I get out of doing 500 different ones. All of us want to get a consistent print. Like, you want to have a quality print so it's not goofed up. Um, but a goof up, we all, we all consider that, you know, different, too, because you can print over it can become a background layer. Um, a fine artist might have to, you know, circular file that one. Uh, I tend to reuse right. everything. I'll just flip it over and print on the back and be like, you know, it adds interest to the back. And why so, not? Yeah, why not? Yeah. I, I don't know if it just means I'm really cheap or what the, what the deal is. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, is that if you want to print, then you print. Okay, it's like, oh, I have a backside of paper that I've messed up 100. Why am I going to throw this away? What, how can I reuse this? Mm -hmm. I mean, it is, again, it is extending your creativity beyond just printing or making that image. How can I be creative in every aspect of my life? It is not exclusive to when I'm at the press. How many different designs have you done, you think, in the last 18 years with these layered effects? I have no idea because a lot of them I reprint because they're so popular. But I, I print, I have a rule that every day I'm in the shop, I have to put ink on paper. Okay. If it's no more than getting a brayer out and a sheet of paper and running the brayer over the sheet of paper. Okay. So you always, and why did you make that rule for yourself? Well, why else be in the space? This is a space where I am supposed to be 
putting ink on paper. Yes, I can go there all day and distribute type, but the ultimate thing of a print shop is to put ink on paper. That's what it does. You know, putting the type away is an activity that allows you to put ink on paper, but a print shop is supposed to print. And so I have to do that. I have to honor the space that I'm in because that space is a sanctuary, a place where that allows me to grow as an individual and I have to show due respect to it. And if I show due respect to that, then that will creep into my life and I will respect all spaces that exist and they will have, I will recognize the spirit, the energy that I give to it and it gives to me. Now, are there ever any days, I'm sure there's been some days since you've been working with letterpress um, that you just did not feel like putting ink on paper and you were in the space. So there, have there already been any days where that having that rule for yourself in that space kind of helped you push into push past whatever might have been making you not want to print? Or do you always find that you want to print? I always want to print, but there are days that I don't want to print to the same degree of enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. But once you, st- it is the starting that becomes the most difficult. Only thing harder than starting sometimes is stopping. Yeah. And so if you can start, then that is a huge hurdle. Uh, Newton said, a body at rest will remain at rest until an external force uh, is acted on it. And that is the same thing with, uh, with you and with everything. If you do not, you know, like this external force is put ink on paper. And so sometimes it's just roll the roller over and I said, I did it. I'm through. I, you know, I met my goal. And how simple is that goal? You know, I, I tell students all the time, keep your expectations low because you will meet them. And in meeting the expectations, you will have a satisfaction that will allow you to continue. If you set your expect, oh, every day I'm going to print 100 posters. <laughs> you may do it for three days and then suddenly it's like, I don't want to print 100 posters. And then a week later, you're not printing any posters. Right. Because, oh, I can't do 100 a day. But if I'm just going to put ink on paper, how simple is that? I can go in the first thing in the morning and say, I've done that. Right. You know, I don't have to put ink on paper. I don't have to think about it at the end of the day. I've done it. It's over with. You mentioned students. Do you teach workshops at your at your studio? No, I don't teach workshops at my studio, but I do a lot of visiting artists' uh, gigs uh, during the academic year because letterpress has become popular at the university level. Yes. And there aren't a lot of people who can take time away and go and do a workshop. Most people who have letterpress shops are working there 24-7 because that's their business. Right. They're taking, making invitations and and business cards and posters and all that. And they have clients that they have to deal with, you know, that like, no, I can't take a week off and, you know, three days off and do a workshop. There are more people that are allowing time for that as they schedule out throughout the year. But because of the way I work, you know, I can, uh, and basically I do a lot of scheduling of workshops, uh, with universities, so I spend at least once a month I do a workshop at some university across the U.S., and then about once a year I do one international. Wow, good for you. That's awesome. 
So yeah. letterpress has allowed you to see a good part of the world, it sounds like. Absolutely, and meet some very interesting, supportive people. I think that when you enter into a community such as Letterpress, there are these people that are extremely generous. I, I, I tell people that there are two types of people that own printing presses, Letterpress printing presses. There are people who own the press, and then there are printers. The way you can tell the difference is that a person who owns the press if you ask them a question, they may not answer it. They may give you a very short answer. But if you ask the printer, you have to ask them to stop talking because <laughs> right. they will share all the information that they have right, right. with you. You know, because they, they love this and they want it to continue, so they share it with you. Because they don't know who is going to be the next person that will be, their life will be ignited by letterpress printing and they just have to do it. So they tell, they treat everybody, everybody has that potential. So I'm going to give as much information as you want to foster that potential within you. And that is a very awesome thing about the printing community because yeah, just at the Waze Goose, it seems like every single table I stopped at I'm a talker. You're probably picking up on that by now. Um, yeah. But every single person, you know, you talk to, you ask a question, you're right. They'll tell you more than what you asked for. And I would just, was thanking people. I'm like, thank you so much. I mean, this is so helpful. Uh, when people talk about what inks they use, what paper they use, their sources for these materials. And a lot of times people won't always share that. In some other art forms, you might have people that think, oh, this is proprietary. And I mean, artists in general, I think, tend to be pretty generous with these things but in some industries you know if you go into a commercial industry more traditional um, industry a lot of times people do not want to share uh, source materials and all that kind of stuff but um, in the print community that's definitely something that you're right you get a lot of information it's shared and people are excited about it so it's that's one re really fun thing even in the emerging letterpress industry, I come across sites where everything is copyrighted by so-and-so and this and that. You know, I'm like, what's... Number one, I don't have any money to hire a lawyer to sue you. Okay? <laughs> okay? And if I sue you, you don't have anything I can get. Right. And if it's a, if it's a multi-million dollar industry, you know, they can sit it out for, you know, like forever. Right. Until I'm dead. Right. You know, so why why am I going to say it's copyrighted? You know, I believe in copyleft, which is, you know, like if, you know, if you use my design in some work of yours, anybody can use your work. So it's like, yeah, I don't care. You know, like if, you know, people say, oh, that looks a lot like your stuff. And I say, no, it looks a lot like what they did. My stuff looks a lot like that. Right. You know, because <laughs> there is no such thing as an original idea. Bell showed up to the patent office several hours before a man named Gray showed up. Both of them had patents for the telephone. They were unaware of their development. Bell got it because he showed up a few hours earlier. I mean, it has happened in your life where you say, wow, this is a good idea. I should do this. And then you don't do it. And six months later, you look and say, oh, they did it. And they're halfway around the world. So it isn't like they heard you talking at a coffee shop about it. I think it can be very crippling when... If you're so afraid that someone's going to steal something from you that you don't share it, 
then you you don't get to fully kind of experience the you know just kind of see how take it as far as it can go. I sell weaving looms too, so I actually sat down at one point with a patent attorney, and I have all these different designs, and they're basic. I mean, we're talking rectangles and squares, and there's interchangeable parts, but it's basic, man. You look at this, and you're like, oh, okay. There's no rocket science involved, no advanced math. You know, it's pretty basic stuff. But I sat down with this, you know, just to kind of see. You know, I'm a I'm a journalist and I'm a writer, and I kind of like to learn as as much as I can about all parts of the process so I can kind of help other people, you know, find some shortcuts. And so I sat down with this guy and he did like a free um, meeting with my uh, friend and I, we both build these looms. And, um, and he basically told me that for each design I had, I was going to be shelling out about 30 grand per design. And if you have like 10 or 12 designs, that's a lot of money. That's money I do not have. That's a lot of printing. That's a lot of letterpress type. I could get a lot of type, a lot of wood type for that price. I mean, I could go to a museum and buy out their collection. You know, I mean, they would never sell to me, but you know, it's just ridiculous. It could be in a really nice house for that price. Um, it's insane. So I thought about that and I was like, and then he said, and then you have to, so you pay the 30 grand for the per design for, for the, to patent this stuff. And then on top of that, if you come along and you're like, Hey, yeah, I'm going to make those, those looms that Jennifer's making. I'm going to give up letterpress. I'm going to start making looms, which would be insane. But if you decided to do that, and then I have to then say, okay, well, I'm going to sue Amos and I have to then hire an attorney and pay to sue you. And then if you don't have anything, as you said before, you know, we're suing each other. We don't really have anything. The people who went out are the attorneys who were paying all the fees to, you know, it just, it, it, and then you, you lose your train of focus of, you know, if you're trying to be creative and do this fun stuff, it suddenly is a lot less fun. If you're trying, you're spending all your time looking over your shoulder, seeing who's coming along to rip you off. And the way I look at it is, you know, I've, I've been doing some of this stuff for a while. And sometimes someone comes out with something that seems pretty close to what I was doing. But I'm like, okay, well, what else could I do? What's the next thing after this? You know, and I kind of try to use that as momentum to, to kind of innovate some more and change what I'm doing and push it further instead of fighting with someone about, whether or not what they're doing looks like what I'm doing. Um, Cause it just seems like not the kind of thing I want to get real caught up in. You know, I like to just innovate and be creative and, you know, kind of keep it, keep it going, you know? So, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's an interesting thing. So you, you're definitely not of the mindset where you don't want to get caught up in the fighting with people over designs and all that. No, I mean, that that is a waste of energy. If someone wants to, you know, I actually was told that a lawyer went to another printer with a poster that I had done and said, I want you to make a poster to look like that. And I'm like, you know, wow. I, you know, they were, are you upset? I said, no, why, why should I be upset? You know, as a matter of fact, I look at that kind of flattering because this printer is like what they call a fine press printer. And now he has to lower his standards to make it look like my stuff. You know, no, no one comes to me and say, here's this fine press printer. I want you to make your stuff look like that. You know, they come to me and say, I want you I want you to do what you do. Yeah, but I couldn't make, you know, it's like, I don't care. You know, like if everybody wanted to print the way I, I printed, I would say, do it until you come up with your own voice. Because you do go through a period where you mimic someone. I mean, even as a child, you mimic your, your parents speech patterns, you mimicked the way they walked. But as you grew older, you kept some of that rudimentary style, but you developed your own. 
Right. So you have to mimic at some point before you develop your own voice. Right. And, and if, I think, yeah, I mean, then your own style comes out for sure. Yeah. And, and so when you teach people, do you, do you teach people just have them just demo what you do or what, when you're teaching someone who's new to letterpress, like what fundamentals are you think the most important for them to get down? If someone were to come to my shop and say, I want to print a poster, then what I do is I say, there's the press. Here's the type you can use. Set your words. And then we'll talk. And basically, I give them as little information as possible so that they can do the work. And when they, you know, if they're there for eight hours, when they leave at eight hours, they may have 50 posters. Because there are these fundamentals that you have to learn. And I teach it with big wood type because I find it for myself easier to work with big wood type than small metal type. You can, you, it limits the size of the words that you can use. It limits the text that you can use. So suddenly, again, these limitations galvanize the imagination mm -hmm. and suddenly things become productive. So, you know, you may walk away with a simple poster that may say, I love you, mom. But you set the whole thing, you locked it all up, and you printed it, and you have four or five copies that you wanted to do. And there's a satisfaction to walk away with something. And then if they're interested, they'll come back, and we go a little bit further. So it is this, for me, it is for the student to have a poster at the end of the session and still have curiosity enough to return to learn more. And then each time they learn more, they get more sophisticated because their body is used to running the press. They know things are going to happen. So I can build upon that experience and let them continue to grow and develop. And then we start to talk about finer points such as design and, you know, spacing between the characters, spacing between the letters, spacing between the lines, the hierarchy of information or words in a proverb or aphorism that they want to do, that sort of thing comes into play. So it is just this experience that as you do it, you grow. And as you grow, you want to learn more. And that's what I foster. When I do workshops at universities, uh, one, we normally do an, an event poster for a local not-for-profit and not something like the United Way or Red Cross, but a grassroots organization that doesn't have a budget to do posters. And once we do that, and that means that the students have to go out into the community and interact with the community. And then once we have that, then we... Uh, we may do some layering of backgrounds and the text. And it's kind of, I have more of a hands-on because of the time limitations because it's normally a day or two days. And so there's this, there's this beehive of activity that takes place. Well, and it's amazing what you can do with backgrounds. And um, I'd, like to, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that. So when you're, do you collect just kind of the ornaments and things that you can use as backgrounds or do you use unconventional things? in your backgrounds? Is it all letterpress type and ornaments or what do you, how do you? Whatever can be raised to type high. Okay. So what is the so weirdest thing have, you've used? The weirdest thing I used was uh, a tire piece of an 18 wheeler. You, if you go down the highway, you may yeah, see where 18 yeah, wheeler the tire blue. Yeah. yeah, the treads. 
So I took that and mounted it type high. And that is one of the weirdest things I've printed. <laughs> That's a yeah. good idea, though. Yeah. And then do you right. have a lot of, I know the for the um, the piece that you gave out at the Ann Arbor event, uh, that looks like a bunch of little triangles that are um, yeah. neg- the negative space. Um, it looks uh, So is that something that you had a bunch of ornaments that shape or did you make it yourself or how did you do that? I, I do a lot of carving of geometrical patterns uh, on, in linoleum. So that was a linoleum carving that I do. I have a fascination with geometrical patterns. I think it comes from my math background. And uh, so I do a lot of that. And also it relates to what's known as chip carving, which is very popular in, I know, in Switzerland and probably in northern Italy. But then when you look at the carvings uh, in, in cultures of, uh, in the African continent, you see a lot of chip carving. It's a very primitive, uh, it's a very pristine way of carving where you make these little triangles and you pop them out of wood, or in my case, linoleum. So I like doing that. I like to um, I like to relate with the more pristine ways of making marks, even though I use you know this high tech letterpress. <laughs> Your high tech letterpress. Um, now I'm looking. Oh, it, was a, it was high tech in in in, in the uh, in the 16th century. It was real high tech. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, the thing I like here's the thing. This is what I like about the slow printing process. My etching presses. And my linoleum and my carving tools and all that stuff, I don't have to ever like upgrade it. Like you have to maintain it. You got to make sure you keep it, you know, oiled and things are running. You know, you might have to replace a part on it at some point. But I'm never going to have to, um, like say, oh well, this it won't run the operating system. I got to get I got to get right. all this type out of here. It's all got to go, and I got to upgrade it to the next thing. And it's not going to end up in a landfill if I can help it. You know, I really want. I'm going to make sure that that has beyond me. There's going to be a I mean, that's something I got to designate who's going to hold my, who's gets the type next. And, um, you know, you don't, it's just something you can continue to use. I'm looking at, okay, there's a poster from 2004. You probably won't remember this at all, but City Stages, it's a a poster for Birmingham's world-class music festival. And in the background, you have all the- Red and yellow. Red and yellow. Okay. You do remember all these things. That's awesome. Yes. Um, Now you have musical notes on a diagonal printed in the background. And I'm curious yeah. about, was that a linoleum carving that you did in the background or was that uh, some, uh, just a, a, something that you had that was uh, a piece well, of... Well, it's a form of printing called pressure printing. And uh, for, for your listeners, pressure printing is a way of printing, a relief form of printing where you have a flat surface in the press bed in case of letterpress that's type high. And that gets completely inked. And then the image that you want to have printed is placed under the paper that is going to receive the image. So as you go over the paper, because you have this image cut out, in this case, on a chipboard, it's going to be higher than the negative space on the sheet of paper that's holding the image. So that's going to appear on the paper that you want to print on. And so that was all done with pressure printing. There's a far more complex way of uh, describing it. And I would suggest that they go out and do a search on pressure printing uh, on the Internet. And they'll probably come up with uh, YouTube videos and also essays on it. But it is a way of making a quick image. And depending on whether you just want to have a reference 
to that image or whether you want to have a well-defined image, you can do both of them. I like to use it more as a reference to something than to have a well-detailed uh, image. But there are people who do remarkable work with pressure printing. That's really cool. And so it, so I love how you just kind of pick and choose from all these different approaches what is going to work for a particular design. And um, so did you learn a lot of these different techniques in your graduate studies, or is this mostly from experimenting on your own? Mostly is from uh, experimenting on my own. I have one quotation from a dear friend of mine that says, if you consider everything an experiment, you have no failures. And uh, what I've discovered is that there's no such thing as failures or mistakes. It's simply a learning process. Mm-hmm. It is that it may not be appropriate for what you were doing, but that doesn't mean it isn't appropriate for something you can do. And so a lot of the things that have happened, uh, people would consider them mistakes. For example, on a Vanderbilt press, you can run the cylinder over the form that's in the press bed, and it will print on the tempin paper. So you have all this text on the tempin paper that you don't want because you always want to keep the tempin paper clean. However, if you do that and you bring it back and you put a clean sheet of paper in the uh, press and you print that clean sheet of paper, what happens is that you have the text on one side that's right reading, and on the reverse you have the text that's wrong reading, and it's all in the same place, which is something you may want to use one which day. Which is kind of cool, yeah. You know, and there may be a project where, oh, this will work really great. And you only find that out by experimenting. Or, or by doing it unintentionally and saying, wow, that's kind of cool. Let me try. How can I use this? It isn't like, oh, I made a mistake. Let me tear it up. That. What is the value? And this is one of the things that I regret about our civilization is that we have introduced this idea of waste, mistakes, things that can be thrown away. One still looking and saying, what is the value of this? How can I, what is the value that I cannot see in it? That I am limited because of the way that I'm looking. Because as I begin to see value in more things and everything, I grow spiritually. I grow and be, I become more in contact with the world and with the energy that is pulsing from this planet. What advice do you have for people that are starting out and looking to get into this um, as far as finding some, some fonts and um, finding materials to print on? Well, one is that they must remember at all times, letterpress printing is a form of relief printing, printing off of the surface. Therefore, Think more about relief printing as the resources that uh, traditionally are used in letterpress printing become fewer and fewer. If you want to press, I would highly recommend that they go to Conrad or another manufacturer and buy an etching press. Modify it so you can uh, print type high material in it. And if you uh, you learn to hand ink it because you're not running, even if you're running a business, you can do enough work hand inking and you develop a rhythm and an understanding that you don't with a Vandercook. So that would eliminate the need for a press because etching presses are still being manufactured and you can modify it for that. Then as far as type, I tell everyone, if you are at an antique store and they have one piece of type that's $5, you buy it because that type is not going to go down in price. You're not going to go back next week and there's a sale on it. Right. 
<laughs> okay. You can go back next weekend at $6, but it's not going to be $2. Right. So you buy it. And in buying that type, you start to collect orphan type. And that orphan type gives you diversity that will allow you to make far more creative work than if you just have that monoculture of one typeface. Because mm-hmm. it's going to force you to, to use different fonts and mix it up. Correct. Yeah. Right. And that's fun. Right. And so, buy, you know, start buying that. Start buying old, uh, what they call cuts that, uh, that were made for advertisement and for pictures. Start buying those. Learn how to uh, carve linoleum. Learn how to uh, look, look around and say, can I print this? For example, you can go to a, hub, you know, to a place like Michael's, and they have these little balsa wood type uh, letters, and they have balsa wood you know, butterflies and things of that nature that you can mount type high and print. Now that's awesome. Now, when you're if you're going to mount that type high, um, is it a pretty standard lumber height at a at a if you're buying the wood to to mount that? Um, what is the easiest way for people to take their purchase from Michaels and mount that in a way that's going to actually fit? Because you even if it's not if they if they're using an etching press, it doesn't have to be type high exactly. It just has to be uniform. Correct. Just has to be uniform. Um, what advice do you have for finding the right so, uh, material to mount on? Well, everything type high has to be 0.918 of an inch high, okay? You find out what that measure is, and then whatever it takes to bring that, whatever you find. For example, you can print cloth letter, uh, relief printing. Mm-hmm, and it's fun. You know? And so what you do is, like, with a piece of cloth, you may have to get, uh, you know, you, you know, it, you, you may have to get, and this is the standard three-quarter-inch MDF board. You put that down, and then you may have to put several sheets of chipboard underneath it to bring it up to type high. So it is just one of those. Uh, there are type high gauges that you can find uh, on the Internet and through uh, dealers. And so if you have one of those, you just measure it and say, okay, I just bring it up to this type high. Or you can get a piece of big wood type and just kind of you know, run your fingers across till they even by sight and by touch because you always have your fingers in your eyes. You may not have that type high gauge. Right. So right. rely upon your body, train your body to, uh, to do measurements as much as possible. So, yeah, it is simply a matter of, uh, especially doing letterpress, say on a Vandercook or a CNT, not on an etching press, but if you modify the etching press to take type high, it's, I sometimes it's simply, I put it in the press bed and I crank it and it's, it stops and I say too much pressure, you know, it's too high, back off and take something out. You know, it is that, you know, it is that experimentation. You know, always know that if the press stops, back it up. And this is the one, one thing I tell students, I tell people when they come to my press, if it stops, call me. It's not broken. I can fix it. So Mm -hmm. don't worry. (laughs) Just say, hey, Amos, it's not moving. And I come over and I tell you what's wrong with it or why it's not moving and then you know, and we'll fix it so it will move. So don't panic. Well, I'm curious about what you haven't printed yet that you want to try to print. Is there anything on your? Oh, what I haven't printed yet? I don't know yet. Uh, I haven't printed feathers. I think that that takes a very light touch. 
I have seen people who have printed feathers and leaves, and I would like to at some point play around with those. I've printed cloth. I've printed dollies, you know, the little lace things. Yeah, yeah. And they turn out really nice. And it's just, you can print just about anything, you know. I've printed dimes. I printed um, pennies. I mounted pennies type high. And I printed, you know, uh, what did it say? A penny earned is a penny saved. Oh, so cool. the background was all these pennies. Yeah, cool. So you bring it up to type high and you can print it. I haven't printed my hand yet, at least not through the press. <laughs> well. <laughs> <laughs> or a human being. Yeah, Are me... you busy this week? Because oh, I'd yeah. like to try that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I want to get smashed. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, you probably you probably should not do those last two things. But every, the, the, oh, the, what a bummer. <laughs> the feathers sound great, though. The feathers sound great. Um, one of the one of the other questions that I have for you is when you were looking to find a market, and I don't know if you had a day where you're like, okay, I'm ready to sell my work. Um, did you start selling your work like right away after you started experimenting with letterpress? Or did you get to a point where you're like, okay, I'm shifting gears. This is going to be my new, you know, I want to be make this sustainable. I mean, how did you find your market or did your market find you? I would say my market found me. Uh, initially, when I started letterpress printing, I was just giving everything away. I was employed, so it was, you know, m m my discretionary funds. You know, I could have been woodworking, I could have been fishing, I could have been some doing something else. But that money that was spent, I was using it for paper and for uh, membership at the uh, at the space where I was working. So uh, I was in Chicago at the time, and I was when I was employed, I would just ride the L and get off the L stop and hand out, you know, a poem that I had printed the night before last week to people just randomly. Oh, and awesome. I would give them to people at work that they could have. And they loved them because, you know, it was printed on a nice paper. At that time, that's the way I was printing. And it was a meaningful poem or aphorism that they could relate to. And after that, I tried to uh, actually do wedding invitations, business cards, but I was uh, spectacular, unsuccessful at that. So I moved into doing books and uh, limited edition books, fine print books. And that market is so rarefied that I was a little put off by it. And finally, I hit up on the idea of doing posters because I tell people the, poster, the posters I make are designed to democratize what we call art, to bring something that the average citizen of this civilization can actually purchase and say, oh, this, I know the person who made this. And it only costs me, you know, $25 uh, because, you know, that's all that he can charge for. But posters now, if you buy them at a store, they sell for $25 and they've been selling that for the last 15 years. And that's, on, that's only because I can only spend $25. And so I, if you're not selling what you make at a price you can afford, who do you know who can afford that higher price? Right. Because most of the people I associate with are in the same financial boat that I'm in. And so I, I look at things from that point of view. I also, uh, uh, because at one time I did several outside craft fairs, and parents would bring their children. And one thing about this civilization, we spend gugabs of money on children. And if you can have something that a child wants to buy, there is a 
highly likelihood that the parents will buy it because they are at a craft show, which means they have an appreciation for art and crafts. And they want that to pass on to their children. And if you take a 10-year-old and they purchase a poster and you sign it and you look at them and say, you know, now you're an art patron and you're starting your art collection, that will stick with them for a very long time. Mm-hmm, for sure. And they will become collectors of art. I jokingly tell people that my posters are the gateway drug to buying art because they price so low. One way to get your work out there without freaking out about whether or not people are going to buy it is to give some of it away, you know, and just, it's a gift. And people are usually pretty cool about receiving something for free. You know, I've never given, yeah. And most people don't like throw it on the ground and be like, no, I don't want this. Um, People say, Hey, thanks. You know, especially if they know you made it, they're like, Hey, that's really cool. Thank you. And, um, and that's a good feeling. And you get your work out there, build an audience. And then, you know, when you start charging later, you know, hopefully you have some fans by then. Right. Right. And you and that's how you grow your fan base, uh, are your the patrons and the people who I I I have been at events where I've sat next to people who will have prints for two hundred three hundred dollars, and I have my twenty dollar prints, and people will come and buy ten of my twenty dollar prints, which is two hundred dollars the same as their print. Right. But when they buy it, it's like I gotta get this for my sister in law. Oh my my husband fishes, I have to get this fishing one for him. You know, I have to get this one because of the teacher. You know, and I've had people say, I'm buying all my Christmas presents right now. That's awesome. Yeah, otherwise they could buy yeah, one print, one print, and they might think, you know, I, I can't buy that print for my house because I, I got to buy Christmas presents for 10 people. Right. And instead they can buy those Christmas presents for 10 people. Yeah, and like I said, there's always going to be a place for artists who make more expensive work. That's that's fine. That's awesome that they're doing that. But um, for those who want to get into printing, I think what you're sharing is wonderful advice to uh, kind of carve out your space and maybe the lower end uh, realm there, especially when you're starting out. You know, and it sounds like right. for you, that's been uh, probably led to a lot of return customers. It, it has. The other thing is, is that we have to build the art market. So, again, as an introductory drug to buying art, a person may buy posters for me for three years and then say, oh, there's a relief printer over there. I saw a piece of ceramics that I really like. I saw a painting for $300. I think I'll buy that this year and buying a poster from Amos because they grow and their art appreciation and their art understanding. Mm -hmm. And they become, you know, they start to say, I have a collection and I want to enhance it. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly you find them buying you know, say after 10 years, if they keep going, you know, for them to spend $500 or $1,000 on a piece of work or on several pieces of work, they'll say, yeah, I've budgeted for that. I know I want to buy. You know, I was here last year and I saw this piece and I've saved up for it so I can go get it. Yeah, it does. And, it, and you're helping the whole community that way. Right. You know, somebody has to, somebody has to open the door so people can get in. I open the door. Well, that's awesome. And I'm very happy to open that door. Yeah. And so do you always demonstrate your process? When Do you always bring a little press with you when you go do shows and visit? If I'm doing a craft show, it depends. For example, the Ways Goose had a space for it. And then last week I was at Carytown and they had facilities so I could uh, bring that small press again. But there are these craft shows that I go to that, you know, basically maybe a card table that I set up. And I'm really, I really want to go to a very kind of small, say, 
uh, craft show and just show up with like 300 posters and just give them away. And you can have it, you know. Oh, because I think that that act of generosity will be met by people that, you know, there will be some that will take it and think nothing, but there'll be some who say, hey, well, at least let me give you a dollar, you know. Yeah. And that dollar is is their way of saying, I don't have anything to give you but this lowest common denominator money. So let me give you that. It's the same way that someone may be sitting next to you at a craft fair and say, I really like that. Or you may say, oh, I really like that, that, that cup you have right there. And they say, well, you want to trade because I like that, you know, that scarf you have. Right, you know? right. And you say, yeah. Right. You know? Yeah, so sometimes you know, it's the like transaction. That, and, and it becomes in some way a gift more than a purchase. Right. You know, it has more of a giftness to it than a purchase to it. Well, I know I've kept you for a long time. I do have, for those listening, and uh, printers are, always want to know what kind of ink people are using. What, what's your favorite kind of ink? Free ink. Free ink. <laughs> Just like free yes. chipboard, free chipboard and free ink. Free. Yeah, because what happens is that uh, because so many print shops, uh, commercial print shops are folding or going digital, they have excess ink that they need to get rid of. And the only way they can get rid of it is give it to somebody or go through a series of processes of filling out forms for OSHA and for the EPA so it is properly disposed of. And so if you find a print shop in your town going out, they may not have a lot of black, but they have all the other colors. And so, yes, you can get more ink than you need uh, in one good setting. If you have to buy it, though, what what do you gravitate to? When I buy ink, I buy it from, believe it or not, I buy it from Kennedy Inks out of Cincinnati, Ohio. And it's because not your I uncle like, that's I like the name. in it? I like the name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no relation, but I just like the name. I'm hoping they'll say, oh, you're Kennedy Prince. Let me give you a discount, but they don't. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's, even that they've, uh, and what kind of inks do you use? Do you use oil-based? Or water-based? I use oil-based inks because uh, I just like the way it works. Uh, there's, a whole, there's a whole bunch of people. I also use acrylic, which uh, does not dry and, fill, and make the, the film in the can like oil-based. But I don't particularly care for rubber-based ink, which is really popular at the university. And they say it's popular at the university because the students don't clean up after themselves to the degree that they should. And it's kind of like, well... You can get away with a lot of things when you're in a public space mm-hmm. and using public facilities. Right. But when you're in, in your own space, you have no one to blame if something isn't where you can find it because you're the only person there. Right. right. You know, if your press is dirty, that's because you left it dirty. Right. Yeah. So it wasn't you have because... to clean up. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So when you say acrylic, are you talking about ink or is this like acrylic paint that you're using as ink? It's an acrylic ink. It okay. is not, it has been around. See, the, uh, one thing, there is this saying in printmaking that when a printmaking process is no longer commercially viable, it becomes a fine art. And so the uh, acrylic ink has been in the commercial realm for years, but it has not made it over to letterpress printing. Uh, there is one printer in California uh, Judith Berliner, who runs Full Circle Press, who uses a lot of acrylic ink. But it works just as well as the uh, oil base or the rubber base. And I will, from time to time, one of the things about Kennedy Ink is that they will mix colors for you 
uh, and they will also make fluorescent and day glow colors for you. It's not inexpensive, but it's well worth every penny. This is some good information that if people want to get chipboard and not cut up their cereal boxes, do you have a good source for that? It is recycled paperboard in Detroit. They will cut your paper to whatever size you want. And uh, they are really good. I've been, ever since I've been in Detroit, I've used them. And uh, when I do workshops across the country, I have them ship paper to the workshop. So I know that I'm getting their chipboard. Chipboard has changed a lot. And so now chipboard is being made out of a recycled newsprint. So you get this grayish kind of look to it. And it's much softer. It's a, it is completely different than the chipboard 10 years ago. But you like the change? I like the change, yes. So if people want to buy your work, which I hope they do now that they've listened to this, they want to buy your wisdom on all these, on, on a piece of chipboard here, or um, <laughs> they can go to your website. I'm assuming that Kennedy Prince, you can just type it into Google. And well, my website up. hadn't been updated for 20 years. It hasn't been updated for 20 <laughs> years? Seriously? But yes. can you still order yes. prints, though? You can't order posters from it, or can you? Uh, you can order some posters uh, that are there, like the coffee series. I have some of those, but a lot of stuff I don't have. I'm not really web savvy, and I'm just like too much work. But you can see my most current work on my Instagram account, Kennedy Prince. Okay. All right. That's and you can, if you see something there, you can email me, and I'll, I'll email you back and make arrangements to sending, sending it. Okay. Uh, in southeast Michigan, BookBeat, which is out in the suburbs of Detroit, carries my work, and also Signal Return. But I am consciously making an effort to get people to go to what they call brick-and-mortar stores, local stores, and buy my work, because that supports the local economy. It supports those people who who have put their life on the line to say, I want to open a store. So if you live... If you live in Detroit, I would prefer you going to Signal Return than writing me and having me mail you one because it helps Signal Return. It helps BookBeat more so because the more people you can help, the better the world is. Right. And your work's available in Chicago as well at The Collective. It is available in Chicago at uh, Chicago Printers Collective, I think. It's CPC and also at Little Street. Uh, which is a uh, arts community, an arts organization. It's been wonderful to get to talk to you. Well, thank you very much for selecting me to be a part of your podcast. I appreciate it, and I hope that uh, people who listen to it will go and follow their bliss, as Joseph Campbell said. Wow, that was really fun. I really enjoyed talking to Amos about printmaking, and I really could have had this be like an all-day podcast because I really, really like to talk about printmaking and type and all kinds of cool stuff. So hope you guys enjoyed this. Through the Craft Sanity podcast website, I will direct you to all the links where you can find Amos and hope you'll add some of his prints to your collection. And I hope you're inspired to kind of give printmaking a try if you haven't done that yet, because it is super fun. And don't be afraid to go outside the lines. You don't have to print on paper. You can take apart your Cheerios box and print on that if you want. Uh, you can also print on fabric. You can print on, on your clothes. You can print on 
whatever. Just probably make sure it's yours so someone else doesn't get mad at you when you've printed on something they didn't want you to print on. Um, if you're a kid listening, ask your mom first before you print on something. So I am going to get back to my job. I have a lot of work to do tonight <laughs> that's not craft sanity related. The semester has really sucked me in at the community college. It's been a, a challenging one already, but um, kind of digging in and we're going to get through this and get on to Christmas break where I could do a lot of printmaking. I am going to be running a sale in my Etsy shop for those of you who are waiting for the perfect time to buy some looms for Christmas presents, my very traditional pot holder loom, the little peg loom. I have a batch of those and also some little coaster looms. I'm looking to clear these guys out so I can bring in a new version of these looms. So uh, the price will be really good. So look for that sale soon. And of course, I have all the usual looms available in the shop and some prints too. And let's see, stickers and t-shirts and all kinds of stuff. So I have some tiny little looms that I haven't listed yet. So there's going to be a lot of like stocking stuffer type of things that I'll be listing soon. But anyway, I really hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks again to Amos for being a guest. And as usual, if you have an idea of who you'd like to hear me talk to next, by all means, send me an email, jennifer at craftsanity.com. And if you want to hire me to podcast full time, please email me at jennifer at craftsanity.com because I'm ready. I'm ready for this, I think. Oh, my word. Um, Could you tell I had a rough day at the office? Yeah, I wasn't even supposed to be in the office today. But, you know, but that's the cool thing about this podcast. It allows me to kind of live this double life that's completely fun and optional. And I do it because I love it. So that's it's always good to have something like that in your life. So thank you to all of you who listen. I really do appreciate it. Thank you to all my Patreon sponsors and people who will send me a buck here and there um, to help keep the show going. I really appreciate it. You really have no idea how much that means to me. So thanks again. My printer just fired up. So I guess that's my cue to sign off. So I'll be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, Craft Sanity, my friends, it works for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Craft Sanity Podcast. To support the show, click the Patreon link at CraftSanity.com to donate $1 a month or buy a handmade loom or magazine at CraftSanity.etsy.com. Same time next.